Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Hopeful Environmentalist, a podcast where we discuss important environmental topics to spark action and hope for our future. It's your host, Taylor, and I'm so excited for you all to hear the amazing conversation that I had with our incredible guest speaker. Our guest speaker is somebody I've personally looked up to within the environmental movement, so this conversation was so enlightening, and it was just really special. I think we talked about a lot of important topics like ecological wealth, making veganism more accessible, inclusivity in the environmental movement, and so much more. So I'm really excited to introduce our guest speaker. Today's incredible guest speaker is Isaiah Hernandez, who is known to many as the Queer Brown Vegan, which is his environmental advocacy and education platform that he started in 2019. In the episode, we discuss his platform more, but I also linked his website in the podcast description so you can go learn more about Isaiah's work and you can also support him. Recently, he's been featured in Vogue magazine alongside Billie Eilish and fellow climate justice activists, and he's also been featured in the New York Times, Now This, The Huffington Post, The Guardian, and so many more. Isaiah also had the opportunity to speak with Kamala Harris in the White House discussing the topic of ensuring climate education for children. His work focuses on intersectional environmentalism, ensuring that no one is left out of climate discussions. I implore you to follow the Queer Brown Vegan social handles, which I've linked in the podcast description, and to check out the webpage after the episode. Now, I'd love to welcome our guest speaker, Isaiah Hernandez. Yeah, thank you so much again for having me. I just want to start out by saying that you've been a huge inspiration and your platform has been a huge inspiration to me and it's helped me form my own sense of environmentalism and really shifted how I think about environmentalism in a more intersectional way. So thank you so much. And I know that so many other people feel the same way. So thank you for that. Yeah, no. Well, thank you so much again, just for supporting my work. And it's really great to see that many people are just developing themselves in their environmental work through community rather than this individual lens. So it really means a lot to me. Thank you. Of course. Yeah. So going on to talking about your platform, what was the inspiration to start the Queer Brown Vegan and what do you hope to accomplish with it? Yeah. So interesting. interestingly enough, in college, I went to Berkeley from 2014 to 2018. I really had this huge passion for the environment, um, social media, and creative marketing. And throughout undergrad, I really struggled in what career I really wanted to do. Um, A lot of people were like, you know, I'm doing research, I'm going to grad school, I'm going to work at an NGO. And I was like, where does social media and this creative lens work out in the environmental field? Like, what am I doing with my career? And at the time, I think when I graduated college, um, I got rejected from all the environmental nonprofits, the big green NGOs, to work as a digital strategist. And they told me that I didn't have enough good climate work. And I don't know what that really meant, honestly, but I realized that perhaps nonprofits weren't for me. And so I started to work at a for-profit company that was a creative agency that really allowed me to explore my creative artist experience as an individual and I think Queer Brown Vegan came back in 2019 when I was in New York City I was really depressed from not really having a fulfilling career in which I wanted to do meaning that I was really overworked I was in this creative industry which was highly toxic and I said I don't want to do this for the rest of my life like I need to go back to the environment because that's what I majored in and I wasted so much 
time and resources to get this degree for me not to use it. And so um, at the time I had this environmental magazine, it was called Alluvia. It highlighted um, black indigenous people of color. And I did it with my friend out of college. And, you know, it's not to say that the project was unsuccessful because we were able to publish our first magazine, but I realized that I had a passion for storytelling and I had a passion for education and teaching people. And a lot of my friends would always say, you know, the way that you speak, why don't you ever write about it? And I said, no, I don't want to take up space in any ways. And they said, no, you need to go on social media. So Queer Brown Vegan Today is like an educational platform that really focuses on providing um, solutions-based journalism and evidence-based hope in a lot of my work, because I think it is super important that young people and also older people feel empowered to learn and have an interest to learn about sustainability and the environment. I think in academia and the way that the environment has been told, it's very reductionist, it's very narrow-minded, and it's very boring. So I tried to think about creating content that is actually rooted in different mindsets and different values. And I think because I have a very unique mind in which I explore my identities in different ways, but also the values I've hold, the friends I've experienced, um, the environments I've been in, it's allowed me to really flourish in the work I want to do today. So providing environmental education that's rooted in environmental justice and hope for me is something that really has given me a real purpose in life to continue being in this movement, um, but also making it my career because I think I realized that I had really no foundation to actually look up to of like who's doing this as a social media career and who's actually successful at it. And that was the hardest point to ask myself, like, if I want to do it, then I should do it now. Well, that's awesome. And you are very successful with it. So congratulations on that. <laughs> and I totally feel you with the educational part. I'm about to finish up school. So it's like, what is next? It just feels like an abyss of like applying to jobs and not knowing where to go. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for a lot of, you know, young graduates, whether they're in grad school or even undergrad, there is this pressure that conversations are always centered near the end of your academic career of like, you know, what are you doing after graduate school? What are you, what are you doing? You're going to grad school or you're going to PhD programs. Um, what's your job? What, and I think a lot of us as young people are in a current, we're in an economic crisis. We're in a pandemic. We have the rising cost of living and we're expected to have successful careers. And it's super hard for a lot of young graduates. And I, I want to tell that you know, even when I graduated college, I literally got my full-time job offer the week I was graduating from Berkeley. So God for, and I was at the last, you know, line of deciding if I should stay in the Bay Area or go back to LA. And literally like that was a very stressful situation for me. And my first job out of college was I think 42 or $45,000 a year, which is pretty much nothing when you live in the Bay Area. And it, it was really difficult. And I think a lot of young people really feel ashamed to like talk about those moments of uncertainty. Yeah. So thank you for bringing that up. It's very important, like you said. Um, so I think a little bit of shifting the topic is you discuss building ecological wealth over generational wealth. And I think that's super important. So can you please describe that to us and what that what that means and why it's so important? Yeah, so I think ecological wealth to me is more of a cultural framework and mindset in which we have to recognize that 
a lot of sacred living systems that are the fauna, the flora, the fungi have been inherently devalued within capital structure. And ecological wealth is highlighting that there is a loss of ecological knowledge in which as a society um, in Western capitalism, what we deem more important is non-human logos. We value brands, we value consumption, we value financial um, above financial security or excess of wealth as of economic wealth as true as true happiness. And the truth is that these are the same systems that have been devaluing what has been taught to us from a young per is a young perspective. And I think for me, like the reason why I use ecological wealth in my work is that as an immigrant that was from Mexico, my parents are directly from the land. They really instilled in my siblings and I of you need to work hard, do well in life, protect yourself and protect the family. And while I agree that, you know, my family means a lot, obviously not everyone has the same relationships with their family. But I also realize that I'm trying to obtain financial security in a world that is built on the oppression of both humans and the non-human animals. And to at what extent is generational wealth actually going to help the next generation when there is not gonna be a livable planet that's going to sustain their lifestyle? Yes, it's true that in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, like perhaps like you would be able to use excess of consumption of materials in the global north because we were stealing them from the global south, but that's not going to be survivable. And at the end of the day, when there's a crisis, when there's no access to electricity or food or water, what are you going to do? Money is not going to help you so much when it's going to be devalued in an economy. What's going to help you is local ecological knowledge systems that a lot of indigenous communities have remained that have named to us. So to me, when I find an individual or I mean an individual that knows about foraging, knows about how to mend clothes, knows how to repair things, to me, that's true wealth because that's something that's actually valuable, not to just society, but it's valuable to who they are as individuals. And the concepts of generational wealth being put out there is still assuming that global capitalism should exist. And I think I've had to really strive away to say, I understand everyone needs to make money in an economic system. And I realize that everyone needs to have financial stability, but there needs to be in the progress in which we're fighting for financial stability and security that we're divesting away for a future that does not rely on these capital structures anymore. Yeah, I love and thank you for sharing your story. And it's so true. I think we put when I say we, I mean, like the people owning all these companies that control yeah. everything, put a value, a, a financial value on everything. So it becomes so hard and being able to take a step back and realize, OK, the environment is way more important than a dollar bill will ever be. But making people understand that and realize that. But also, like you said, we all need money as well and we need to work for money as well. So it's really one of those like wicked issues where there's no 100% answer for that. But thank exactly. You so thank you so much for that. So the next question I have is science tells us that our current food systems in regards to meat are extremely unsustainable and damaging to the environment. But for many, veganism is not possible, whether that be due to financial privileges, geographical privileges, disability or chronic illness, and so many other things. And veganism has kind of taken the scope of the white veganism and white vegans and that perspective. So would you mind sharing how we can make veganism more accessible and how it's not accessible now? 
Yeah, so I think with veganism, it's a, always a nuanced conversation and it's an active conversation that should be held. I never really believe that anyone, even myself in my work, should make binary statements that do not provide context. I think, you know, veganism for itself is different from plant-based diets because plant-based diet just focuses on the individual. The veganism is more of an ethical philosophy that tells an individual that, you know, animal liberation to me exists on a spectrum, right? Just as human liberation, right? Like people that love their animal companions love are exploring animal liberation. I'm not saying that they eat non-human animals, that they don't understand animal liberation, but I think veganism to me has been a way for me to understand other depths of liberation from multi-species and what I'm fighting for and ecological justice. I think that there are multiple truths that coexist within veganism is that in our global food system, we know that the the produce that we get, fruits and vegetables, is picked by undocumented farm workers who look like me. They're Latin. When we look at the meat factories, yes, it's black and brown people and usually immigrants that are undocumented too that are the ones working in these facilities. And these expansions of these industrialized systems are not so much stemming from human consumption, but it's stemming from capitalistic methods that was done by white supremacists and capitalists that believe that privatizing ecological systems would ensure financial security. And there goes again, where the issue of these industrialized systems, although they feed us today, right? Like a lot of us, even myself, go to these industrial grocery markets because that's the only access we have. None of us have access to soil or backyards to grow our food. None of us don't know any knowledge about, or some of us do know knowledge about foraging, but we are reliant on this industrialized food system here in the global North and we are, you know, provided access. And so I think when it comes to veganism specifically, I think there needs to be this conversation that vegan within veganism, there are people who are poor that can be vegan. There are people who are poor that can't be vegan. And like you mentioned that geographical privileges, me growing up in poverty in the urban area in Los Angeles is not the same saying I grew up in poverty rural um, in the South. Um, that is a complete, um, you know, misunderstanding that I think a lot of people are saying like, if I can do it, anyone can, right? Because when you say that, that statement, it says that equity and justice um, and resources already implemented, which is untrue. And this is where the this is where it becomes more nuanced. Is that I know people who are broke that are vegan, but I also know people who are broke that can't be vegan due to time poverty, due to the fact that they have certain disabilities that prevent them. But that's not to say that those who do have disabilities um, are not able to go vegan. And so I think that there needs to be an understanding that. It veganism is unique to every individual. It is it's going to be a unique story um, within that. And I think, you know, people that can't go vegan within plant that they can go extend themselves to do plant-based diets, I think that to them kind of offers an opportunity for them to understand that, you know, we as individuals, and as much as we try to villainize individual lifestyles. We do have a we have a culture to uphold and to change, and I think that a lot of people do not need to eat meat at least five times a day. I know friends who eat meat like two or three times a week, and I know my friends who eat only twice or once a week. And it's like I don't think that me asking for people that are my economic career um, that are in the same circles as me. 
I'm asking them to start to look at their food consumption. I'm not so much looking at the people who are college students who just may not have time to even think about their meal or people who are in poverty that are like, I don't even have a choice. So if we're going to talk about veganism, I always tell people that what is the choice and what is the access that you are bringing into your local community before having the discussion of veganism? And the issue with veganism being portrayed as a white thing is because media has done a really well job on centering whiteness as a whole by usually platforming white cis men while disregarding that in the United States that Black vegans are actually the largest demographic of individuals that are going vegan. And that's been proven. And I think that's something that we need to be celebrating is that it's not a white thing to eat more plants or, or fruits. It's not a white thing um, to be advocating for animal liberation. It should be a planetary rule and a birthright that as individuals born in this society in the global north that may have privileges is that how do we extend ourselves where we can as much as possible before trying to shut down and saying like, well, you're an animal abuser because you're not vegan, right? Like, I don't like saying that either to people, but I do believe that there needs to be an interrogation from both sides of how do we come together to come with the conclusion of what is the best way to navigate. And I found that education to me is empowering an individual rather than interrogating their values and being like, why aren't you doing enough when I don't know them? don't know their resources. I don't know their disability. I don't know, um, you know, what they're going through. I just don't know that. But I do know that the ones I talk to in my personal life can, and I expect them to do better whenever they can, since they have the resources and privilege. Yeah, I love all of that. And again, the educational part, what you're doing is amazing. And you are out there doing the work to make people realize that if you have the choice to, you should be doing it. If you have it accessible to you, it, it's something that you should be doing. And I like that thing of like you were talking about a choice and what's accessible. And it's so important to look at that. When we talk about veganism or plant-based diets and more veganism to people, they're like, oh, well, why, why, why should I do it? Well, why you should do it is because there's you have the privilege to be able to do it. You have access, something yeah, that is absolutely. accessible to them that they should be doing to care about the planet, to care about other people, and to care about animal liberation as well. Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, I agree with that. It's about providing choice and access, but understanding that this is going to destroy an individual's life <laughs> by just reducing meat intake by one. <laughs> you know, I always tell people redu reductionism is the best way to get there. Yeah. And also when you were talking about who is the one who's farming and who is the one who are in the slaughterhouses, it's a lot of the times not white people, right? It's people yeah. who are marginalized communities. And it's the same thing with fast fashion. You know, we get all of our stuff from people in working in these horrible conditions and we don't see it, right? So it's one of those things that when we don't see it and when people figure out what is actually going on and learn about what's going on, they are more likely to make those better and ethical decisions. So what you're doing with your platform is super important. Yeah, thank you. The climate movement historically has been very exclusionary, and it still is in many aspects. I really loved your latest Instagram post discussing how exclusionary the environmental science field is and sharing your own story for BIPOC community, women in LGBTQ plus community, and people with disabilities and conditions. So how do you think we can make it more inclusive to everybody? And why is it so important for everything in the environmental field and everything in the world to be inclusive? 
Yeah, I think it's important for it to be inclusive is that it showcases the future of culture and it molds the individual. As a young person who never saw myself as an environmentalist, when you think about environmentalists, I sometimes think about Bill Nye, right? Bill Nye is known as this like famous scientist that does really great science communication work. And it's really great. But then I started to realize as a young person is that why is it that many of the cartoon figures, the celebrity hosts, science communicators are white? And I started to think barely any of them are women to begin with. So why is it that people of color don't get these opportunities when we've been doing them? And you start to realize lack of resources, the fact that none of them want to amplify diverse voices of future environmentalists. And so with the climate movement, I think historically in the environmental movement, if you look back in the history of like the dominant, which is like the more generalized form, it centered a lot of white voices. And this is because these people were quote unquote, knew how to talk eloquently, had those connections, were advocating for animal relief, not making things quote unquote political because caring about the polar bears wasn't seen as divisive or it's not a race thing. It's just about a human thing that we need to fix together. But the environmental justice movement for being in the 1960s and 1970s that began to birth from those civil rights movements, that's where it's hard to say people of color have always been part of the environment. We are not separated. Dismantling white supremacy is environmentalism and it's not divisive to say that. And I think in terms in within academic spaces, the reason why there's not it's not inclusive is we need to not even ask ourselves, just look at the boards of the individuals who are running, who gets to hire, usually white men. You go into the departments, white men. And, you know, I think when people say, like, why are you hating on white men? They worked hard. I'm not saying that they didn't do research. I'm not saying that they haven't contributed to their career. What I'm saying is that the amount of racist rhetoric that has been perpetuated not only by the institution, but by those individuals is inherently classist, racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, and students that are undergrads and graduate students, what makes you think they're gonna be in a space that is predominantly already white with the professors and teachers and also their classmates, that they're gonna be able to challenge that without feeling that they're gonna get backlash for that. And so this is the reason where I think as someone that studied environmental science, it is still interesting to say that these fields need to change and sometimes I feel like they need to be removed, but then I also recognize that there are people in those institutions that are trying to make it inclusive. So the, the need to make it diverse isn't to be like everyone becomes happy, it's that we actually give justice to those who have been misrepresented and we start to shift those harmful stereotypes of people of color don't care about the environment. I'm like, that's a racist statement and assumption because we all know that the people of color in these environmental programs are pushed out because they don't feel they're already disempowered by these spaces. I think a lot of um, white individuals that say, oh, well, I'm the problem, I guess, for existing. No, 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 it's not that they are existing. It's the fact that they're allowing white supremacy and oppression to be constantly perpetuated towards their peers and that they need to understand that they will never truly understand that experience. But that doesn't mean that they should be silent when they see something that is highly problematic done because they have the resources and privilege to start challenging these types of oppressive structures. 
I think that's so important. It's true. Representation is important and access to, like we talked about before, access is extremely important and who is able to access these spaces and be pushed into the forefront of media and all that stuff. And it really is crazy when we we look at all the people that have been in like Bill Nye and all those people who have been the top people we look up to and everyone I look up to has always been white. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. that's crazy. And why is that? And when we look at that and look at the systems that allow them to get to those spaces, again, like you said, not saying that they didn't do the research and they don't have the mm-hmm. education to, but they were given these resources over other people. And that's so important to look at. Yeah, Absolutely. So many other people, many young people, including myself, oftentimes feel very isolated in some sense in terms of what action to take next. So what do you believe are some actions that young people can take right now? I mean, I think we need to start validating our existence being a part of the solution. I think if someone told me, what is one thing you can do to change the world? Or what is one more thing that they can do? I would probably lose myself to be like, look, I'm struggling to pay rent. I barely have money for food. I don't know what I'm doing in my career. I don't have a job lined up. And you're telling me that I need to do one thing in my life to change things. Like I would completely just be like, this is BS. And so I tell people that, you know, the best thing that you can do for yourself is actually seek out your friends and your community and ask for help, ask for mentorship, ask for things that are easily able to be manageable. I think a lot of young people need to start reaching out for help. Like I have a lot of young people who are so scared to ask me a question, even though we're a four year difference. I'm like, imagine if they're scared of me, what makes you think they're they're going to reach out to someone who's a CEO in their thirties or forties or fifties. That needs to change. We as individuals that are coming from this digital generation need to be able to create these pathways and opportunities for young people to feel more included. There needs to be more incubator and slash scholarship and internship programs that allow for these young people to actually thrive and that are actually paid because no one wants to do free work. Anyone who works with me, they're paid. There's no such thing as like, oh, well, this is like unpaid. That is what, to me, is the best thing that people can do is seek mentorship and find someone in your life that will help you get there. I think a lot of times people are saying, oh, well, this person's going to get me to my career. No, I've had several mentors that allowed me to learn from them to make the right steps for my career, but they never were there to walk me across the line to make my career. That is that is what we need to understand. And I think that is what would help people, especially young people, feel like they are continuing this journey and we need to normalize that you know our lives are messy like it's really complex like a lot of people have so much issues people go through no one talks about the depression that people go through after graduating college and not getting a job not having friends not um feeling like they're comparing themselves with their other friends that have careers not being able to travel this is something that's really common and it happened to me too even if i had a job i was like i don't think i'm doing that well compared to my other friends and we need to be able to have have these conversations to normalize and validate ourselves like we're not alone and things will get better but at the same time things are not okay and it's okay to say that they're not okay 
I love that. And thank you for that advice. I'm taking that and putting that in my pocket because I need that right <laughs> now as someone who's about to go into the real world, the real world quotation marks. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think building community, like you said, is something that I always try to push as well, because I feel very isolated a lot of the times within the environmental movement. So being able to reach out, like you said, to get help to look for mentors is so important and so crucial. So again, you brought up amazing topics. So thank you for bringing that up. So last question that I have for you is, what is something that gives you hope regarding the environmental movement? As the hopeful environmentalist, I have to ask it. Yeah, I think, you know, culture and social media is changing a lot. I think we're going into evidence-based hope. And I love this terminology that was coined by one of my mentors, Ellen Kelsey. And she it's a sense of optimism that's not rooted in wishful thinking, but the continued progress that is being made in society. And I think within my digital sphere, the amount of sustainable and environmental science communicators that have popped up from social media is proof that there are people trying to enter this movement because I will tell you, I'm not the first one that was on social media, but I could say that part, maybe that I was one of the first few ones that a lot of people were like, oh my God, like he made this into his career. So I think that's an opportunity to do that. But I also think, you know, as the temperatures rise, so does the resistance and movements. And I think it's super important that we recognize that as people of the global society, we are rising against these institutions. Is it a fact that the temperatures are increasing? Yes. But is it a fact to say that communities are being disempowered rapidly? No, because communities are still existent today. And I think it's really easy for a lot of us to say, you know, well, I don't really know what to do, or is this ecosystem actually regenerating? And that's the thing where I think hope is not able to be seen sometimes. You can't see it because if I told you that, you know, this certain species is coming back in a certain ecosystem, you probably, you can't tell because you're just like, well, it's just a, there's a tree, there's some animal, and that's it. I don't know what it is. But I think that is what's being shifted is that we are seeing more hope spread out across different areas and different disciplines. And that's what's going to give us that momentum to continue going sustainably instead of just throwing ourselves and then burning ourselves out and then throwing people away for being discardful or not useful to society, quote unquote. Yeah, your mentor and everything you just said are very, very true and very right. It's I always try to talk about how when I'm the hopeful environmentalist, it's not blind hope. It's hope that has action, hope that incites action and wants and allows people to feel hopeful to create their own hopeful environments. So again, I love love that. Is is there anything else that you want to add before we wrap up the episode? Yeah, no. I mean, I think the last thing I'd say is like we cannot liberate ourselves from this climate crisis without our community. And in order to do that, we have to sustainably love ourselves and create that circular relationship with the land, people, and animals, and also recognize that we're our loving ourselves is not always going to look so positively. There's going to be lows and highs within that. And that itself is a continuous cycle of building that long-term work than this minimal work of throwing yourselves in to the deep end of the pool and, and assuming that everything's going to change within there. Thank you for that addition. And thank you so much for joining the podcast. And again, your work is amazing and I look forward to continuing to follow you. So thank you for joining. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. 
And that wraps up this episode of The Hopeful Environmentalist. The conversation that we had during this episode was absolutely incredible, and I really hope that everybody who was listening is able to take the information that we talked about and the topics that we discussed and really think about them. I know for me, at least, the conversations that we had in this episode were conversations that I haven't really had with others, and I I challenge myself and I want to challenge everybody else listening, if you haven't had these conversations or you haven't thought about these topics, to really start doing the research and go follow the Queer Brown Vegan on social media platforms and challenge yourself to learn about these topics and to learn how you can get involved. So again, thank you so much for listening to another episode of The Hopeful Environmentalist. And always remember to stay hopeful and create positive change.